Well, good morning again. I trust you had a really joyful time fellowshipping with the saints this morning. At this time, I would like to ask that you please open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 1. Now, you have no idea how much joy it gives me to even say those words. Uh, by now, you've probably become familiar with the fact that I say, I say these first four words before every sermon that I preach when I'm up here. Please open your Bibles. And that's important because it is a precious gift. You have no idea how gifted the Lord has made this time in history that you have both the ability to read the Scripture and the access to the Scripture. It's on your lap as we're considering it. That is incredibly rare and unusual throughout Christian history. So I'm enjoyed every time I can say to you, please open your Bible as we walk together through the Word as we attempt to rightly divide the text. But today I'm particularly excited because we are going to begin walking our way through the book of 1 Samuel together. Now, this, this summer, we've had a lot of wonderful opportunities to consider the attributes of God and to consider uh, various aspects of things like the Lord's Prayer and other Scripture texts after we concluded the book of Acts. And all summer, as we've been doing that, I have been looking toward this Sunday. It's kind of like, you know, the roller coasters where at the beginning it's like click, 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 and then you finally reach that juncture where the roller coaster begins. That's this morning, and I am excited to go forward with you as we take our dive into the book of 1 Samuel. That's where we are today. We're at the beginning of a wild journey through one of the most epic stories ever told. First and Second Samuel were originally one book. They were later divided because it was simply easier for them to write it into scrolls. It would fit better. And that's why First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, uh, they all have that one and two in front of them in our English Bibles because when they started copying them onto these large vellum scrolls that they would roll up, it was just easier to have them fit on a smaller version. So First and Second Samuel were originally one book. And that book of Samuel contains some of the most incredible stories ever written in human history. It has the best stories about war and about palace intrigue and friendship and betrayal. It has really great acts of villainy and also valiant acts of heroism. And more than any other narrative in the Old Testament, the book of Samuel contains a very rich and personal examination of the emotional life of both joy and sorrow experienced by the people in these pages. In short, this book is like a storyteller's dream. But more importantly than any of the drama that we find unfolding on these pages is the foundational substance of what these words are all about. This entire book is presenting us with 140 years of Israel's history so that we can get one important message. The entire book is screaming to us that there is going to be a good king who is going to come, and he is going to set up a good kingdom. Now, initially in this book, that king appears to be David, but as we make our way through the text, we're going to find that it's actually looking forward to a king after David, a better king than David, a good king, a perfect king, and one who rules a perfect kingdom. And the amazing thing is that we can go to that king right now, and we can ask him that he would serve us this morning by helping us to understand how all of this is about him. Let's pray. Our Lord and Father in heaven, we ask that right now you would show us Christ that you would reveal to us the glories that you have hidden in these words so that they might encourage us, strengthen us, convict us, and challenge us. Lord, we acknowledge that without you, apart from you in this sermon, I can do nothing and the hearers can do nothing. 
For Lord, we need your Holy Spirit this morning to illumine our minds so that we might hear and receive and live this truth. Father God, we pray that in the midst of these words, even though we will be looking primarily at Hannah this morning, I pray that we would primarily see Jesus Christ. In the precious name of Jesus, your Son, we pray these things. Amen. Now, before we even read the text this morning, I want to help set the stage for what we're about to hear, because I want you, as much as humanly possible, to feel the context of the world and what it was like when these things came to pass. A couple of weeks ago, I was at Colonial Williamsburg with my children. They're studying Revolutionary War history this year, and so we thought uh, pre-colonial times and then into the Revolutionary War area. This is a great time to kind of examine some stuff on family vacation. And on this family vacation, we went to Colonial Williamsburg, and I was listening at one point to a man who kind of looked like a young Freddie Prince Jr., but who was pretending to be George Washington. And he was representing George Washington during the time of the French and Indian War, well before the founding of our country. And while he was speaking, he asked the crowd that was around him, do you know what country I'm from? And what answer do you think people gave him? America, what else? Great Britain. A lot of people said England, Great Britain. And he said, what's wrong with all of you people? I'm a Virginian. I'm from Virginia. See, at that time, uh, the colonies wouldn't have understood the idea of America as we understand it. And they certainly didn't feel as though they were British in the sense that British people understood it. He would have claimed to be a Virginian. As we're arriving at Israel, this is long before the kingdom's peak. And it's, in fact, at this time, Israel would not have understood itself to even be Israel. Just like the 13 colonies were independent from one another and had different governing bodies, they were separate colonies prior to the existence of the United States, so were the 12 tribes of Israel separate from one another when we arrive at chapter 1, verse 1 of this book. These 12 tribes were exactly that. They were tribes. They were separate and even often warred against one another. We read all about these years in the book of Judges and the book of Ruth. Judges covers roughly 300 years from the time of Joshua to the time of Samuel, and the most important thing that you need to know about all of those years boils down to what we read in the very last words of Judges. You see, what he says at the conclusion is not isolated to the conclusion. It's something that he repeats many times throughout the book. But the point of Judges is that when he gets to the end, nothing is better than the beginning. At the very end of the book, here's what it says. In those days... There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's the conclusion of the story. The book of Samuel begins when Israel was in a state of absolute anarchy. Everyone did whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted. And they felt like they were in charge of their own lives. The fear of the Lord and the worship of the one true God had nearly vanished from the land at that time. And that's why no Christian movie of the book of Judges will ever be able to be faithfully made because the evils that took place in that book cannot be visually portrayed without having a hard R rating. It would be the worst kind of film to create. It describes a place rampant with violence and with sexual sin. Even the judges that God would raise up to judge the enemies of Israel were notably lacking in any kind of character. Samson, the most famous of the judges, was an absolute scoundrel of a man. 
The world of the judges was one of moral confusion and spiritual wandering and absolutely no good leadership. It was Bedlam. That is the world into which we are stepping right now. And the book of Ruth gives us a wonderful picture also of what everyday life would have been like in a small village during that time in Israel's history. And that book serves as the origin story of David, David's family as it goes back to how his great-grandparents, Ruth and Boaz, met. And if you really want to dive into what life was like during that time, commercial time, join us on Wednesday nights for our equipping hour. We're going to begin going through the book of Ruth this Wednesday night, 7 p.m. If you want to get more of a sense of the feeling, of the context, of where we're walking right now, the book of Ruth was concurrent with what's going on here in 1 Samuel chapter 1. So come and join us Wednesday nights. We're going to learn more and more about that. And I would love to have you here as we delve into what life was like in a more uh, kind of a longer form way. But we are stepping now into this mostly dusty, morally bankrupt society and that's where we arrive in Samuel 1.1, a people with no king, no godly leadership. And so now that we've gotten our footing, look with me to the text, 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. There was a certain man of Ramathim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, son of an Ephrathite. And he had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and sacrifice the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept. And would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose, and now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And he said, let your servant... And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. 
Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. The way that we're going to break down what happened here in this text is to look at two distinct angles. First, we're going to consider sorrow, and then we're going to consider joy. In the style of a grand epic, we are introduced here not to the hero of the book, not to the protagonist, but to the humble forerunner of the protagonist and his origins. We begin in an obscure place with obscure people who without the first few chapters of this book, we would never have any idea who these people are. They would be completely lost to history. We begin with the sorrow of deep personal tragedy in the life of Hannah. Now, throughout this chapter, we are introduced to five other people other than Hannah, and each one of them in their own way finds avenues to bring sorrow into her life. Let's begin with Elkanah. It says in verse 1, this storybook style entry, there was a certain man of Ramathim Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah. Now, this book is incredibly efficient with its word count, and there is a ton of information that we can learn about Elkanah, even though he gets relatively little screen time. First, we know that he actually seems to be a relatively good man compared to almost everybody else we read about at this time. He seems to actually worship the Lord. He's consistent in taking his family year after year and traveling with them to sacrifice to Jehovah. And he seems to actually genuinely care about his wife, Hannah. It says in the inspired scripture that he loved her. Now, we also know that he was probably at least what we would call upper middle class. And how do we know that? Because of the second sentence in this book, which lands like a lightning strike into the story, it says, he had two wives. The only people that had multiple wives at this time were men with just a little more money and a little less common sense than the average man. (laughs) Just like you should expect, when people break God's order for marriage, it always results in devastation and sorrow. This polygamist marriage, just like all the others in the Bible, produces nothing but contention and misery. Now, I want you to notice something as you look at verse 2. It says, the name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, there is more here than just a list of two names. It's an ordered list. The listing of names in Hebrew writing is always important and intentional. Scholars seem to be pretty unified in the belief that Hannah was not just one of the two wives, but she was the first wife and that Penina was brought into the family later. That's what this order indicates. Why does that make any difference? Well, it makes a difference because of what everyone in those days when this was written would have understood about their culture, but we in our modern world have a very difficult time understanding. Why would a man bring another wife into his family? Why did Abram bring Hagar into his family? Same reason. If you exclude royalty, who often married for the purpose of treaties, the answer to the question is this. You would get a second wife if your first wife could not produce you an heir. That is the reason. So it appears, just like Abram took on Hagar, Penina was probably brought into the family because Hannah was barren. She received a replacement because she could not have the desire of her heart. Now, this text is not explicit on that point, so I definitely don't want to be too dogmatic, but we begin peering into the marriage of Hannah and Elkanah by seeing that he has failed her in the very simplest of his duties, which is to be faithful to her until death parts them. 
And he has broken that faithfulness by bringing another wife into their family. Now look with me again to verses 3 through 5 where it says, Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice the Lord of hosts to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters, but to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. Have you ever been really low, like super discouraged, and then somebody tried to come and cheer you up, and they just made it worse? If I've had that happen before, and this is a hilarious picture of what happens when a husband cluelessly tries to help his wife in all of the wrong ways. Hannah is basically devastated in her place in life, and Elkanah's response is basically, have an extra leg of lamb. That does not go over well. Just like a relationship, just a little relationship advice here for the guys. Look, when we're down and somebody says, hey, I'll give you a steak, that makes us feel a lot better. That's usually not the way that it works with your wives. But essentially what he was saying to her is, I am going to double your portion. And what she was saying is, I want a different portion. I want a son. But truly, what is Elkanah supposed to do here? I mean, I get his trouble. He can't just disown his other wife. He can't just abandon those children. He, he in fact, it says, has not rejected Hannah and that he loves Hannah. But from an earthly standpoint, he has made his bed and now he has to sleep in it. What else is he supposed to do? There's nothing that he can do to change her sorrow because he cannot give her the one thing that she wants. Now, spiritually speaking, it seems that he did faithfully lead his wife according to the laws and customs of the time to worship in an era where many people had consistently rejected sacrificing to the Lord. So it does seem that there was a sense in which he was pointing her to God. But let's pause for a moment with Elkanah. We'll come back to him in a second. But there's an interruption in the text with these other people that are brought in. It's no accident that there are two other men that are brought in to the story, Hophni and Phinehas. These two are not described in detail at this point, but they're going to play a big role in the book of 1 Samuel. And we're going to hear a lot about them. And you're going to find out that these men are absolute garbage. Now, that's the way I would describe them, but I don't feel bad describing these men that way because God himself in the Holy Scriptures defines them in the next chapter as, quote, worthless men. These men are worthless men. Now, one of the things that they were condemned for doing was stealing the food that was sacrificed to God, which they were supposed to get a portion of that food, but instead they would take more than they were supposed to. Now, you're going to hear a lot about that in a few weeks, so I'm not going to dig into that deeply right now. But when you get there, you're going to supposed to feel outrage that they are stealing from God. They are dipping their hands into the, the coffers of what belong to him, and they are claiming it for themselves. They have no fear of the Lord. But for the sake of today's text, I want you to see that their theft would have also robbed Hannah of the one thing that Elkanah was trying to do to encourage her. They would have been taking the very food that he was giving to her as a portion for her encouragement. Now, the reason I bring that up today is simply to say that all of your sin and all of my sin is primarily against God, but the blast radius always produces collateral damage against the people around you as well. Hophni and Phinehas, 
may have never even seen Hannah. They certainly weren't thinking about harming Hannah when they were taking this food, but indeed it was something that would have affected her more than they could have understood. Realistically, Hannah probably didn't even care about Hophni and Phinehas, but what did shake her to her core is found in verse 6. It says, And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. Now this sentence is a masterclass in writing. Every single word in Hebrew is an intensive. Penina is not even named here. It doesn't say in Penina would do this. It says her rival, indicating these two women, they are competitors. Whether Elkanah intended it or not, he had set these two up to compete over his affections. And Penina would provoke Hannah grievously. Now that word provoke, that is way too light of a word in English to encapsulate the weight of what is being said here. That same word is the same word that is used for enraged or infuriated. It's the same word that is often used in the Old Testament to say that God himself was provoked to anger at the people of Israel. It is something that comes after the constant complaining of the Israelites. It denotes an endless cycle of intentional antagonism. And it tells us not only that Penina did these things. It tells us why she did these things. This was not accidental. It wasn't that she just happened to have kids and she had to live in front of Hannah and so Hannah felt bad about it. It said that she would do these things to, quote, irritate her. It was a way to rub it in her face. Now, once again, this word is way too small for English to grasp the massive weight of emotion in the original language. It just says that she would irritate her. This is the only time in your Old Testament this word is translated irritate. In fact, everywhere else it is translated as either either thundered or roared. Now, thunder and the roar of a lion, those are the two loudest sounds that people could find in nature during those days. Look at how this very same word is used a little bit later in 1 Samuel, over in chapter 7, verse 10. It says, As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering... The Philistines drew near to attack Israel, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines, and he threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. That doesn't feel like what I think of when I hear the word irritation. When I think of irritation, I think of what happens when I get a pebble in my shoe and I have to walk on it for a while while I'm carrying a child in each arm. That is irritating. This woman is thundering against Hannah. Penina was not just mildly teasing her. She was a wicked woman who was twisting the knife as deep as she could into Hannah's heart every chance she got. I like how in his commentary, Dale Ellis describes Penina as a mouthy, overly fertile thorn in the flesh of Hannah. Perhaps the hardest blow of them all was in verse 6 that it states that everyone, how everyone else would have understood it that it was God who closed her womb. Now, this was not some accident or some medical issue that God didn't plan for. Culturally, people would have thought there was something sinful in her that would have caused God to curse her by closing her womb. This is not some over-spiritualization of the author of Samuel writing these words. It is how every person would have described her. Cursed of God, closed womb. 
Every day of her life, Hannah was forced to live being compared to a woman who was essentially her replacement. She was forced to endure the mocking of someone who had everything that she wanted. And this was not just a one-time thing. Verse 7 says, so it went on year by year. Hannah's entire life had devolved into a pattern of being scoffed at and jeered for things that she couldn't control and things that she didn't want. Her portion was to be the butt of the joke and the object of scorn for everyone around her. And verse 7 continues, As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she, Penina, used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. Now I find it very interesting here that there seems to be a connection that is made between Penina's provocation and her insults and Hannah's travels to worship the Lord. Now, it's interesting because it never says that Penina would worship the Lord, but that Penina, when Hannah would worship the Lord, Penina would provoke her. Now, it's likely that Penina's insults made claims about God's lack of love for Hannah. I just, I can't say this definitively, but why would her insults attach to visiting the place of worship of God? My assumption, and I could be wrong, my assumption is that it probably sounded something like this. Do you really think God's going to listen to you this time? He obviously doesn't care about you like you think he does. If he did, then he would have given you a child a long time ago. Now again, I'm reading into the text there a little bit, but it does seem to me that there's a strong connection between the timing of her insults and her attendance at this worship service, so it would make sense to me that this turmoil would include a spiritual element to it. Once again, Elkanah tries to save the day in the worst possible way. It says, And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Now, what's wrong with that kind of comfort? On the one hand, this is a relatively common way of comforting in this time. In fact, when we get to the book of Ruth in a couple of weeks, we're going to see that there's a similar kind of comfort that is given. Am I not more to you than seven children? But here what we're going to see is very important. This kind of comfort, this method is incredibly flawed. Now, on the one hand, I do commend Elkanah for attempting to show love. But giving food or even giving himself would never actually satisfy her heart. And it wouldn't bring about genuine joy. When you try to comfort someone, how do you do it? Most of the time, what happens is people just attempt to distract you from the pain for just a few minutes. If I can just get them to look at something else than the discouragement that they are feeling, then they will be happy. There are times when I'm honest with people and I tell them, I just don't know what to say to you other than to encourage you to look at Jesus. Paul describes God in 2 Corinthians 1.3 as, quote, the God of all comfort. That word all there is important because it indicates there is nowhere else to find it. The only place to find actual genuine comfort is in God himself. And Elkanah could have come into this situation and encouraged Hannah by reminding her of God's incredible love and praying with her to trust in the Lord's plan. But instead, all he could say is, I should be enough for you. Now listen, you will never be enough for someone. You will never be enough to truly encourage them, to truly comfort them. Be there to love them, listen to them, 
point them to God, who alone can give them comfort. Now, when you get to verse 8, there's a clarification that I think is very important that isn't really obvious in English. It says, after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now, to me, just the way that I read in English, it sounds to me when it says they, being that the only two people that it has mentioned at this point are Hannah and Elkanah, when it says they had eaten, it indicates to me, oh, Hannah and Elkanah ate together, that he got her to consume some food, and then she walked out of that meeting. But that's actually not what is happening here. The word they there is an exclusionary they, separating her and distinguishing her from the group. It's saying they, the people that were together, ate, and then Hannah didn't. She got up and left. It's important because we see that she doesn't eat anything until we get down to verse 18. This woman is so devastated that she can't even sustain her own life with the things necessary to continue on. This is where Hannah seems to reach a kind of breaking point in the text. Here's where we see her lose her composure. She breaks down. But whether she knew it or not, she did this in front of an audience. Verse 8 continues and says, After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorstep of the temple of the Lord. And she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give to him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. This tells us something really important about Hannah. It seems that this woman, who was almost certainly illiterate, who had likely never seen a physical copy of the six books of the Bible that had been written up to this point in history, that this woman still knew the narrative history of God's Word well enough to speak in direct alignment with what God had said to Moses at the burning bush. She is asking God to do exactly what He said He would do for the Israelites when they were slaves in Egypt. It is there that God said that he looked upon the affliction of his people and that he knew their suffering and that he had not forgotten them. Hannah almost quotes those words and is asking for that exact same thing. Deliver me. Not from slavery, but from the misery of not getting what she wanted most in life. So she does something unexpected that reveals a deep aspect of what is actually going on in her heart. It's at this point that she tells the Lord, if you give me a son... I will give him right back to you. Now that is weird. That is odd because as a dad, I can't imagine anything more heartbreaking than having to take one of my kids and give them away. Especially when they're tiny. Can you imagine taking one of those little ones and if you have children, walking them halfway across the country and giving them away, knowing that you will probably see them one day a year at best. That seems odd to me. And yet, she commits herself, if you will just give me a child, I will give him back to you. Now, it's important because this has more to do than just seeing the child. It has more to do than just the relational aspects of it. If she doesn't have a child with her, that child would lose all of his standing in the household and would not be considered an heir. In essence, what she's saying is, if you give me a child, 
I will give him away and lose all of the social stuff that comes along with being a parent. In other words, all of the things that her rival wife was continually picking on her about, she would still lack all of those things. Panina could still look at her as a childless woman. If she received just one child and then gave that child away, then it would be possible for everyone around her to still look at her and think little of her. In fact, her husband could not look at that child as an heir and he would see her in the exact same way as he had before because that child is not his. That child belongs to the Lord. Now, this shows that all of the social reasons that she might have had for wanting this child are now stripped away and something else is going on. Something else is happening here. It's clear that she is trying to wrestle through this battle between her own personal desire to have a child and now there's something else that's very obvious to the reader. She also has a strong desire to honor the Lord. And that's not something we've seen super clearly up to this point. Verse 12 says, As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. Now, we're going to get to know Eli pretty well over the next few months. He's kind of a bit of a fumbly, bumbly old man who continually misreads the spiritual nature of what's going on all the time. Uh, but this high priest who should have sought the, to help and serve Hannah instead was just ready to immediately cast judgment on her and send her away as a drunken woman. Now, maybe that's reasonable if this was a consistent pattern of drunken women just randomly showing up at a place of worship and that was a, a, a consistent problem that he had. I doubt that to be true. But I want you to listen to Hannah's incredible response. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am, a I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Now, there's an intentional wording here that is beautifully poetic. Now, the idea here is I'm not pouring into myself. I am pouring out of myself. I am not bringing something into myself to comfort me. I am giving all of my distress to God. That is the imagery that is being made here. He, she continues, Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. And then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. Cast all of your cares... That word is anxieties. Cast all of your anxieties on him, for he cares for you. Here is where we reach the turning point in the text, and here's also where we reach point two. Now, before you get nervous, point two is way shorter than point one. But look again at verse 18. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. And then the woman went her way, and she ate, and her face was no longer sad. Now, let me ask you, at this point, what changed? Certainly not her circumstances. She was totally transformed internally long before she had a baby. Do you think that Penina was really going to be different on that ride home than she had been on the ride there? Her circumstances were exactly identical to where they were before she started praying. But internally, there was a massive shift that just took place. There is a total transformation that occurred while she was praying in those verses. Now, perhaps you think that this is a strange place to conclude the text that we're covering today. That's where we're going to stop. 
And we're going to stop here because today we are not focusing on how we respond after God gives us what we want. What we're looking at today is how we should respond before God gives us what we want. We are considering how we can have joy in the face of disappointment. In order to explain it, I want you to look at verse 18 again. That last sentence says, Then the woman went away, went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. But do you want to know something really interesting? Now, this is going to be a little bit of a Hebrew lesson. But in our English Bibles, they had to add a word here to make the sentence make sense. And they do this in every translation of the Bible. Because if you translate it literally, it just says, and her face was no longer. Now that sounds like she died or like some weird horror movie or something. But what is going on here is called an absolute reversal. It doesn't have the word sad there. It just says she wasn't like that anymore. Well, what was it talking about? In Hebrew, this means that you go back up through the text and you see how she is described and see that she is no longer that. She is no longer those things. So what was she prior? What was absolutely reversed here? Verse 6, she was provoked to anger. Verse 6, she was irritated. Verse 7, she was sad. Verse 10, she was distressed. Verse 15, she was troubled in spirit. Verse 18, she was anxious and greatly vexed. That is what is reversed. Now, after going before the Lord in prayer, she walks away having an absolute reversal of those previous emotions. Brothers and sisters, I don't want to downplay the genuine sorrow that you experience in your life. One of the challenging but wonderful aspects of being a pastor is that I get to walk with people through the greatest joys of their life, but also through the challenging miseries that come along with living in a sin-cursed world. And I have spoken to many people who have incredible emotional challenges with even coming to a worship gathering. For example, I know that Sunday morning, Mother's Day, can be a very difficult time to worship for those who are struggling to have children or for those who have lost children. Now, I don't want to deny the pain in circumstances like that. I don't want to deny that it can be challenging to come before the Lord when you are not receiving the things that you desire, good gifts that you want. But I do know that that sting that you feel is something that can be remedied. Not that the circumstances will necessarily change, but the deepest pain that comes into your life in those moments comes from the false premise that your life would be absolutely better if you just got what you wanted. We could consider for a long time the nature of God's goodness and providence towards his people. Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good. We could play the what if game here and say, well, what if God had just given Hannah what she wanted the first time? She would have never dedicated Samuel, and then we would never have the book of First and Second Samuel. If, if she were to have just gotten what she wanted right away, then obviously Samuel wouldn't have grown up in the Lord's house. Samuel would not have ended up being the kind of last judge, prophet, man of Israel. If this were to happen, then all of these incredible events for the rest of the book would have been eliminated from human history. We could play the what-if game, but we don't have to get too complicated here. It's evident that the comfort comes to her not from having what she wants, but it comes to her when she actually just trusts God. It's that simple. It's at this point she just started to trust him. Now, to be clear, Eli's blessing was not a promise 
to give a child. And she doesn't seem to view it as a promise that she will get a child. This is not like God covenantally promising Abram, by this time next year, when I return to you, there will be a child from Sarah. And Sarah hears it and laughs. And she said, I didn't laugh. And he's like, yes, you did. You're going to have a child. This is a man, Eli, who is a relatively poor spiritual leader, just saying, may the Lord bless you and give you what you desire. And she walks away happy. This is not a promise that God will certainly give her the desire of her heart. Eli's priestly benediction did come to pass, but it was not understood to be an absolutely unbreakable covenant. But Hannah walked away from that time in prayer with a total reversal of her devastation and sorrow because it appears that she found something she didn't even realize she was looking for. She found the love that she was missing from her husband. She found the compassion that she was missing from Penina. And she found the kindness that was missing from Eli. And she found it all in God himself. And you might say to yourself, wow, I I really don't see how you're getting all of that from verse 18. And I would agree with you because the book keeps going. And we're going to find out in a couple of ways over the next few weeks a lot of how her heart is displayed as a godly woman who was satisfied in him alone. But today I just want to show you two things briefly. First, Hannah did truly and joyfully give up her son that she prayed about for so long. How many times have you made promises to God and then you broke them? You're like in a near-death experience or what you perceive to be a near-death experience. Maybe you're teaching your child to drive and you're saying, God, if you just get me out of the car, I'll give you whatever you want. I'll never do this thing again. You make promises to God. All of us have done that. We make a promise to God, I will never do this thing again. And then like a week later, you forget and you do the same thing again. How many times have we just made a promise to God and we walk that back as soon as we get what, he, get what we want? We get what we want. Here, she doesn't walk it back. She gets what she wanted and then she does exactly what she said she would do. She gives away the one thing she had wanted for so long. And she doesn't do it begrudgingly. She doesn't act as though God is twisting her arm. It says at the very end of the chapter that after giving her her son away, that day she worshiped. Now in chapter two, we're going to get to hear the detailed prayer of Hannah right after she gives Samuel away. It's one of the most magnificent and poetic portions of the entire Bible. It's quoted by many people, including King David on many occasions. And perhaps the most famous line is found in verse two where it says, there is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. That is a powerful statement. Here she's talking about God as the foundation of her life. Now here's my point. Hannah was able to have joy because she came to realize long before she ever received a son that joy is not found in getting a son. It's not found in a husband or wife. It's not found in the perfect job. It's not found in comfort or ease. It's not found in money. It's not found in sex. It's not found in relationships or friendships with other people. Sure, God can use all of those good gifts as kindness to you, but none of them were built to satisfy your soul. And if you try to make them do that, you are asking them to do the impossible. None of them are the true source of joy. Joy comes from knowing God and living for him. Joy comes from trusting him even when you don't get what he's doing. Joy comes from not getting what you want. Joy comes from getting God. Now, can you really say 
take this world and give me Jesus? Can you say that? I mean, we sing that. Can you actually say that? Can you really say, whatever my lot, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul? Can you really say that? If your joy is riding on anything other than the Lord, it is as fragile as a crystal glass in a blender. But if your joy is built on Christ, it will never be shaken. Even if your circumstances continue to be difficult, you can still stand in joy. You see, Hannah stopped looking to Samuel, this potential child, as her source of joy, and she started looking to the Lord as her portion. Please don't hear me say, just give up your dreams and accept the consolation prize of God's love because you're never going to get what you actually want. I'm not saying that. I am saying that the most glorious and precious treasure in the universe is ours because God loved us so much that he sent Jesus to die in our place. Not only are your sins forgiven through Christ, like if that's the only part of the gospel we ever talked about, that your sins are forgiven, amen, praise the Lord, we should worship forever. But that's not it. Not only are you forgiven, and not only are you given a seat at his table in eternal glory in heaven itself, not only are you given a family, the people of God, the church, beyond all of that, you get God himself. The gospel is not just about the forgiveness we receive from God. It's about how God receives us. That is what Hannah finally understood. And if you're struggling to trust God because he has not given you the desire of your heart, then you need to trust him and you need to make him the desire of your heart. Be satisfied in him. Now let me close with my favorite portion today of Psalm 73. I debated on telling you this, but I, I will share it. Many of you have heard this before. One of the things that pastors do after they've pastored for a period of time is they start to repeat stories. Well, I'm going to repeat a story. If you've heard it, forgive me. But there were several years ago that I had a man and his wife into my home uh, when we lived in Queens who was suffering immensely. And the matter of this conversation broke me when he began to cry because Lou Gehrig's disease had broken him down so bad he couldn't even hold his own baby any longer. And he said, how am I supposed to deal with that? And all I could do was open the Bible and read Psalm 73, 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth I desire besides you. Hannah was saying that for years about a baby. That's it. That's all I want. But eventually she understood that's to be focused on God. Whom have I in heaven but you, God? And there's nothing on earth I desire besides you, God. My flesh and my heart may fail. And they will. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Elkanah tried to give Hannah a portion. Here, just have a little bit of extra meat. That'll make you happy. God has a better portion. God gives you himself as your portion. If you understand the richness and value of having God himself, you can lose everything else and you can still have joy. Let's pray. Father God, I just ask that you would please, by your grace, 
draw near to those in this room who are currently in the place of Hannah before that time of prayer, who are looking at things that they want, even good things, even precious things, even things like a spouse or a child or that perfect job. Lord, I pray that they would make the mistake of overestimating the value of the gift and they would properly estimate the value of the giver. And Lord, I pray that we would find our joy in you and that as we live for you, our joy would be unshakable because it would not be settled on anything that can be shaken, but that it would be founded on you alone. God, we ask that in all of these things, that you would cause us to bring our suffering, to bring our loss, to bring our desires faithfully to you and to cast those anxieties on you. Lord, if there is anyone in this place who is currently devastated like Hannah was devastated, help us, Lord, to draw around them as a church, to encourage them to care for their needs, but also, Lord, to point them to you who alone can satisfy. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.